Oh, great God, we pray that you would come and do what only you can do. We're here, fully dependent on you, and we pray that you would take your word and bring renewal and bring revival. We pray that you would surprise us this morning, doing more than we could ask or think or that we were expecting to have happen in our souls this morning. For your name's sake and in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray, amen. Well, we're taking a few months to work our way through the first couple chapters, first three chapters, mainly chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. This is one of the most unique parts of the Bible. The the book of Revelation as a whole is, of course, unique, and Revelation two to three uh, is unique within this book because Jesus is giving direct messages to particular local churches, and through that, giving a message to all churches. And these were real historical churches in the first century with real Christians like you and like me. And what Jesus says to each one of them applies to all of us. He knows what each church needs to hear from him, and he knows what every church needs to hear. So what Jesus says to them is relevant for us today. And each message that he gives in Revelation 2 to 3 ends with this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we approach this series of sermons, we're not going to hear a direct message to Zionsville Fellowship like these first churches heard directed to them, but we hear at the end Jesus saying that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, is speaking to all churches through these particular messages to particular churches, which means our posture should be one of openness to God Himself rearranging our priorities and values, convicting us of sin, encouraging us, commending us where commendation is warranted, and bringing repentance, fresh repentance where that is needed. And so, the overall point of these messages is to call Christians and local churches to persevere and endure in holding fast to Christ, especially in a culture where Christians are in the minority or faithful Christians are in the minority, and the culture may even be hostile to Christians and churches. So, Jesus is calling His churches here in that context to rise up, to stand firm, to hold fast, to keep going even when they feel challenged or in a hostile environment. So, the culture of these churches in the first century was pre-Christian. We now live in what could be called a post-Christian culture, or increasingly so. So, there's a lot of similarities between churches today and the churches then and the culture then and the church and the culture today. So, here's what we want to do then. We want to have a posture that leans in and listens to Jesus and allow Him to command us or commend us as individuals and as a church. So let's read this first message to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, 
and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will, get, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is addressing one great particular danger to this church here, and it's the danger of having doctrine without devotion. He's addressing the challenge of having the truth without love. This was the great challenge of the church of Ephesus. They were a church that had their theology clear in their heads, but they've become cold in their hearts. And this is a great challenge facing every church. Every church is called to be a biblical and theologically faithful church. Every church is called to be orthodox in its doctrine or teaching. Every church should be able to affirm a biblically faithful doctrinal statement that clarifies what we believe about the central truths of the gospel and God and Christianity. And every church should love to learn about God. But there's a great challenge in growing in theological carefulness and rigor, and it's this. We can have theological rigor in our heads, but not have the spiritual realities in our hearts. And we may not even notice that there's a problem. That was Ephesus. It's been thousands of churches. It's the challenge for every church. It's a challenge for every one of us. So, how do we become Christians in a church that hold fast to both truth and love and not pick one or the other or put them against each other, but embrace both of them together as a seamless whole? How do we hold doctrine and devotion together? How do we become head and heart people and not just one or the other? Well, this text gives us four answers. We'll see this as we walk through the text as it unfolds. As we read it, uh, we might have sensed that this letter really has a movement to it like a letter. These, these are messages as part of a greater letter of the book of Revelation. These messages have an introduction that shows who Jesus is, who this one who's speaking is, and then there's a body of this message, often with something to commend and a warning given as well, and then there's a promise held out toward the end. So, we'll walk through this in these four parts, this introduction of Jesus, a commendation of what's going well, a warning of what needs to change, and then a concluding promise of trust. And so, each part here helps answer this question. How do we hold doctrine and devotion together? Well, there's four things we can do. First, we need to see Jesus' care for His church. That's the first thing we need to do. That's the first thing Jesus says to a church that needs to hold these together, is He wants them to see a vision of His care for them personally. 
Each of the seven messages begins with a unique symbolic vision of Jesus. If you were here with us last Sunday, we looked at the extensive vision of Jesus in chapter 1, and now each of these seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 draws on that vision, or most of them do, draws on that vision and something that was said about Jesus and has that as part of the introduction of the message to a church. And so the introduction to Jesus here says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the first thing you may wonder about before we even get to that, those statements of this vision of who Jesus is, is the mention of an angel. Why does he say that this message is given to the angel of the church of Ephesus? What is the angel? Well, I'm not sure. No one's really sure. The word for angel in the original language can be translated messenger, so some people have thought that this is to the messenger that delivers the letter to Ephesus. Others have thought that this refers to maybe the lead pastor, the senior pastor in the church of Ephesus, or the local bishop who's overseeing house churches in the area. Another option, which I think is most likely, is that it's an angel, uh, a real angelic being. That's how this word's used throughout the book of Revelation. So, it seems like each local church has an angel assigned to it. So, we know that there are invisible spiritual realities around us and angels, and that angels have a role of serving and helping individual Christians. So, it's not too much of a step to assume that the Lord would organize how these angels minister to Christians and even have an angel assigned to every local church and be somewhat of a representative of that church. But we do see as we read the letter that it really is for the church itself, not the angel, whatever, whoever that may actually be. These messages are clearly for the churches themselves. And so that's what the stars represent that we saw last week in this vision. Jesus holds the seven stars in His hands, and the stars refer to these angels of the churches. So it's a way of saying that Jesus holds His churches in His right hand, His strong hand, the right hand of power. He protects His churches. He keeps His churches. He holds them. He protects us. We belong to Him. And this says that He walks among the seven golden lampstands, which chapter 1 says refers to the local churches. This symbolic vision that John is seeing of seven lampstands, those are symbols that represent churches. So, Jesus walks among the lampstands like the priest walks among a lampstand in the temple in the Old Testament. So, here's Jesus with His churches, walking among His churches, present with His churches, present with us. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is here with us this morning. He knows what goes on. He has opinions about what we do together. He has opinions about how you treat one another and how I treat others. He has opinions about what we say and how we say it, about decisions we make in our lives, decisions we make as a church. Uh, Jesus is with us and he knows us. That's what verse 2, that's how it begins here. I know your works. So he sees what we do. He knows what we're like. And here's what this means. You and I matter to him. What we do together as a church, how we treat one another as a church, how we spend our time, that matters to Jesus. He's with us and he knows and he's observing He cares how we speak and how we treat and how we think about one another. So that's the first thing. Second, we need to hear him commend theological faithfulness. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. He affirms a number of things at the outset. Jesus knows them. He's watched them. He 
assesses them, and he's happy to encourage and affirm them. And to the degree that these things that we read here are true of us or you personally, we can receive this same commendation from Jesus. So first, he commends them for their hard work. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Notice it's not just a few works. They've been toiling and patiently enduring, and it's been for the sake of Christ. Verse 3 says that they've been bearing up for Jesus' namesake. So to the degree that that could be said of you, if you think Jesus would give that assessment of you, I know your work, your toil, your patient endurance for my namesake, then this commendation is for you. And I know this is true of many of you. You're devoted to serving one another. You hear of a need in someone's life and you step in to meet that need before it's even asked of you. You hear someone's sick and you're bringing a meal or getting a list of people together to bring meals to one another. You're diligently serving. You have been for years, maybe in very unnoticed ways. Many of you view your vocation as a way of serving Christ, and, and you think about that in the morning as you head to work. You think about how this job is here for the good of the world, for the flourishing of culture, to love my neighbor as myself, and for the name of Christ, for His name's sake. So Jesus sees that, and He commends that, and He says, well done to that. He says, well done to you who are parents who are serving as a mother or a father for Jesus' name's sake. He sees your work. He sees your toil. He sees your endurance when nobody else does and nobody else is commending you. Second, Jesus commends them for theological orthodoxy. They're a theologically faithful church. Verse 2, he says, And I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested with those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. So some people have apparently come among them claiming to be apostles. They've made themselves Christian leaders, and they've come to Ephesus, and they've begun talking to people, but the church here has tested them, and they found them to be false, not true apostles. So they're doing exactly what the apostle Paul had told this particular church to do a generation before. The apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus. We read about this in the book of Acts. And he loved them. He knew them well. And the last time he met with some of them was recorded in Acts chapter 20 when Paul meets with the elders of this church in Ephesus. And he told them in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, drawing away the disciples after them. So that's a serious warning to local churches. It's a serious warning to elders as well. Jesus is saying that elders themselves, it seems, will begin to distort the truth. And so they need to be diligent about the truth. They need to be open to theologically correcting one another or those who come in from the outside. And so this church has done that. Jesus commends them for their theological faithfulness in assessing these people. This church is filled with men and women who knew the Bible. They knew how to articulate who Jesus was, why He died, what His resurrection means, what He's doing now as the ascended Lord. They, they know that He's coming back. They know what the church is supposed to be about. They know how God saves us, how He gives a new heart. 
and that He inevitably calls us to lead a lives of good works, and that all those who have this new heart will begin to live lives of good work. They know that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were able to, to discuss theology with one another and point out dangerous theological beliefs. So this is a hardworking and a right-thinking church. That's the church of Ephesus. They're devoted to right living and true theology. They're devoted to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And we listen to Jesus commend them. And so we can hear him commend us to the degree that this is true of us as well. So is this true of you personally? Is this true of us together as a church? How much of your mental energy is spent on growing in your understanding of the Bible, of God's Word? Are you able to discern teaching that doesn't accord or fit with God's Word? Can, can you even discern those things? Are you able to engage in discussions about God and His Word and Jesus and the Christian life and other theological topics? Are you intentionally thinking through how to order your life so that it's ordered to serve Christ with all your energy like the Ephesians were commended for, of working with hard toil and diligence. I think in our cultural moment in America, at risk of generally or overgeneralizing, uh, we should commend the women in this and exhort the men. I think that women seem to be more committed to this by and large in the American evangelical church than men. So I don't want to overgeneralize. I don't want to make men feel terrible because many of them are worthy of this commendation. I'm looking in the eyes of many of them in this very room. And I want to celebrate men and women who are pace setters in the local church and affirm men and women for their diligence. And at the same time, we should ask the question, why does it seem among many Christians in our day and place that so few men are pace setters in these things? in diligent work for the name of Christ, and in theological carefulness and discipleship in all of life. So we need both, and where are the men? So I think it's helpful for us to hear what one pastor said about this. He said this, how many of our churches are sustained by the ongoing, tireless commitment of solid, committed Christian women who read their Bible more than their contemporary males? who are more committed to prayer than their husbands, who carry the burden on their backs of the agony of their teenage children, who bear the burden of their grandchildren's concern, who have to look up the Bible references for their silly husband who doesn't read his Bible and hasn't in a month and a half. Ladies, congratulations. Gentlemen, where are we? He goes on to say, Why has the average teenage boy so turned off Christianity? Well, in many cases, the answer lies in the absence of role models that have combined spiritual conviction, manly commitments, and a sense of living in a real world with a real love for Christ that gains his commendation. So, I want to say that I see both men and women setting the pace here in these things in our church, but I want to encourage you men to look square in the eyes of verses 2 and 3. And consider, is this true of you? 
Does Jesus think this about you? Will he say well done on that great day to you for being like the church in Ephesus in this way? And if not, I would encourage you to find a man whom you think will receive this commendation and say to him, candidly and frankly, will you please help me? Uh, Will you meet with me? Can you help me grow in thinking about my priorities and my schedule and how I spend my time and uh, help me think well about Christ? So I encourage you even right now, if that's you, just write someone's name down that comes to mind. And maybe before you walk out this morning, stop that person and ask him, if he can help you. And same, of course, true for women as well. For all of us, young and old, men and women, in whatever season of life you're at, if you find that you don't fit this commendation, find an older brother or sister in the faith whom you think is out ahead of you and ask them if they would meet with you and get together with you and think these things through. And if you are men or women here who are striving in growing theologically and in service, well done. And Jesus says that to you this morning. So we hear Jesus commend them for these things, for their theological faithfulness and their diligent lives of service. But third, we need to consider his warning about loveless orthodoxy. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, this is perhaps a bit more serious than it sounds at first. I mean, serious enough. Jesus says, I have this against you. Uh, But it may be even more serious than we're thinking because by my count, Jesus listed seven things that he commended them for in verses 2 and 3. And here's just one thing that he has against them. So that nets out at six positive, right? Uh, But that's not quite the case here. It's not like they have seven positive and just one negative, so they're at six not bad, pretty good, because notice how serious this is. He says at the end of verse 5 that if they do not get this in order, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, their lampstand is symbolic for their church. So, Jesus is saying that if they don't clear up this one issue, they will no longer be a true church. So, this one issue is an essential issue. If they don't address this one, then there's seven other aspects of commendation here long-term will not count for anything as a local church. They won't be counted as a true church anymore. So what is this all-important issue? Well, simply, it's what Jesus said here. They abandoned the love that they had at first. What does that mean? Well, question, is this love for God or love for others. What is the love that they abandon? It's hard to tell. Uh, I don't think we need to be forced to pick one because the two always go together. And all through John's writings, who's recording this vision as well, if he says repeatedly in different ways, if you love Jesus, you will love his people. If you love Jesus, you'll obey his commands, the central one of which is to love others as yourself. And if you do not love Christ's people, it calls into question whether or not you have a sincere love for Christ. So you may start growing cold in your love for people when you grow cold in your love for the Lord. And we all see this in different ways fluctuating from day to day in our own souls. I find this to be true. 
uh, to the degree that I'm filled in warm love for Christ and God, the Father and the Spirit, I overflow with love for others. So when churches get theologically precise, like this church in Ephesus was, but they don't have a warm-hearted affection for God, what happens? Some of you know firsthand what happens. Maybe you come out of a church background where you, where you felt this. Maybe people in your life, you've noticed this. Maybe you know this from experience. Well, people start to turn on one another. They start growing cold toward others. They start becoming militant with their beliefs. They start being overly suspicious about what theological error lies behind what that person might have said there, and they want to sort that out and police that in everybody. They start being overly critical of others who aren't as smart as they are. Or for those who are diligently active in service but lose their heart of love and warmth, they begin begin becoming critical of other people who don't seem to be as obedient as they are, who aren't serving as much as they are. So this is a challenge facing the church in Ephesus, and it's a challenge at one degree or another facing every church, separating doctrine from devotion. So which of these two do you personally lean more into? Devotion from the heart, doctrine in the head. If we were to separate them just for this thought exercise, which do you lean more toward? Great thoughts or strong feelings, the head or the heart? Well, whichever one you are neglecting over the other, to whatever degree you are, this text calls you to lean into that one more. Not to neglect the one that you typically lean toward, but to have both of them strong. So no Christian and no church could be, should be content to be just one or the other. I mean, Jesus doesn't say to the church in Ephesus, well done with your doctrine, well done with your service. You're not quite of a feely church, though. You don't kind of have the heart of love, but that's okay because the church at Smyrna over there, they love me. They're, they're, a, they're a church filled with love. They're kind of weak theologically. They don't like thinking very much. They don't know their Bibles very well. They're not like doing much, but they, like you should see them sing and pray. Um, and so it's okay because big picture in Turkey area, Asia Minor, they kind of balance each other out, right? He doesn't say that. He looks at each church individually and he wants them to have everything, everything they need. So he says, well done for the theology, well done for the service, and you lack this. And it's so serious that you can't borrow that from another church saying, well, they have it. If you don't get that in order, I'm going to remove you from even being considered a true church in my eyes. Wow. So it's as strong as it could be. And so there's a danger for thinkers and doers here. Dedication to the Lord's word and the Lord's works. So what do we do if this is us? Well, Jesus gives three clear steps. We don't need to wonder. Three clear steps in verse 5. Remember, repent, and repeat what you did at first. So first, remember. He says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. So this church that he's speaking to, used to have this kind of love that he's calling for. What did that love look like? Well, we know a little bit about the church's first days. The book of Acts tells their story. Paul had planted the church there. He spent nearly three years there, 
teaching them well. No doubt that's partly why they had this theological faithfulness. He taught them day after day. Many people became Christians, and many people became Christians at that time out of a background in the occult. They had magic books, and they publicly burned them when they became Christians. Many of them stopped buying these little silver idols that were made in that town, which even made a guy named Demetrius, who made his money off that stuff, get upset at Christians and upset at Paul and caused this town-city riot because these Christians didn't care to participate in the economy of idolatry anymore. And why did they do that? Well, because they found a God who loved them with all his heart, and they couldn't help but love him back with all theirs. And so they just gave him themselves, and it radically changed their lives. They began to love him with all their hearts and love one another deeply. And so when Paul even wrote them a letter, which we refer to now as the letter of the Ephesians, he spoke about their great love for other Christians. He prayed that they would be strengthened to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. He ended that letter with a benediction for those who love Christ with a love incorruptible. But now a generation later, The church is still going with good theology, still moving along, and good works, but their heart is cold. So it's May in Indy, which means Indy 500's here. So I think the Ephesians are somewhat like these cars. The engine was revved up immediately, became hot. The driver floored it. The car took off, but then at some point... This car ran out of gas, and in those next moments, that car will keep going. That car will keep going very fast. It will have the appearance of continuing to speed, and it will still make turns, but very soon, that car is going to slow down and come to a dead stop. A church that's lost its first love can keep going through the motions for a while, but unless it refuels that love, it will not last. That's what Jesus is saying. So some of us need to remember that first injection of fuel from our past, to be lovers of God and lovers of others. So for those of you who have been Christians for any significant length of time, I encourage you to respond to Jesus' command here in a very practical and concrete way, taking his words very seriously to remember. Uh, Set aside time today maybe immediately after the service if you sense this need, um, to remember, or sometime this week, what was it like when you sensed you had a, a fullness of love for Christ? What was that like? Remember what you did. I remember when I was first growing in Christ, I, can, I, I have snapshots in my mind when I would set aside large gaps of time to read the Bible, reading through the book of Romans, reading straight through the gospel of John one afternoon, and carrying a pocket New Testament with me so that I could just read the Bible whenever I had spare moments. And as I met people who I wanted to engage with conversations about the Lord, if they didn't have a Bible, I would give them mine and just replace that pocket Bible um, going on there. And, and I think back to that, and I think often, where did that go in me? Why don't, why don't I have that kind of joyful drive that I had? And I'm reminded of this, really, anytime I have extended conversations with someone who is in that season of having this love they're having at the beginning of their Christian life. And, and I see this fervor and this joy and this love and this thirst and this hunger. And then I consider myself, and this, is, this happens from time to time, just realizing I have drifted. I've been cooling. 
And I need to get back to that. So that's the very first thing is just remember. Now, some of you won't need to do that because there has been a steady growth in your life right now and you are experiencing the most love that you've had for the Lord and others in your life. So we thank God for that. But many of us may, need to, may feel like this Ephesian church. And there has been a cooling. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows that. And he has this word for you. Remember what it was like before. Second, what do we do next? Jesus has another word, repent. We remember and then we repent. So we don't just remember to feel lousy about ourselves. Um, we actually remember from where we drifted and then repent. I mean, what do you do when you realize you've lost your keys and you, and you can't remember where they are? Well, you have to stop and you have to have this act of remembering, right? You have to pause and quit your, quit your frantic looking and just say, okay, where was I when I had them last? Right? I think some of you are nudging each other because this is coming home. You've, you've seen this happen, right? Where was I when I last had them? And then you think, oh yeah, they're on the dresser in the bedroom, right? Now, what do you do after you remember? You don't just say, oh, I knew it, and that's on the other side of the house. What am I going to do? <laughs> My day's ruined. I can't come, right? No. You remember not to feel lousy, but to go get the keys, right? So go back there and get them. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Remember that first love and then go back. Turn around. Turn away from the current coldness and complacency and turn to Christ with renewed affection for him. This is a deliberate act of the heart, turning our hearts to this point in our lives. And third, we repeat, he says, repeat the works we did at first. As we think back to what we did when our heart was filled with this overflowing affection, we do those kinds of things again. So did you serve people with a different kind of affection before? Serve people with that affection again. Did you ask people more questions about their lives with this curiosity about what they're like more than about sharing your own interesting or uninteresting details of your day? Well, have those kinds of conversations more often again. Did you wake up earlier so that you could get more time to hear God speak to you through His Word? Did you set apart time to have sincere prayer to the Lord and speak to Him? Did you intentionally, on your commute to work or as you start your day, think, I'm going to do my job or parent well today for your sake, Christ. Please help me, Lord, by your Spirit to do this. So think back at what your life looked like and do those things again. I can encourage you to maybe at lunch today or at your small group time, share the kinds of things you did. Just share together. These are the kinds of things that I did when I felt like my love was at its highest for the Lord Jesus Christ. Even get ideas from one another. So those are the three steps. Now maybe you're hearing this and you recognize that you don't actually have a first love to return to. And you're thinking, I don't know that I've ever had a real affection for Christ. Maybe that's a surprising thought to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe you know that you've never had an affection for Him, but right now you're sensing you want that. And you're sensing what would it be like to be filled with love for the God who made me? And what would it be like to be filled with love for this one who loved me so much that He gave His own life for me? What would it be like to know the risen Christ who is alive and present among His people? 
And so I encourage you to hear Jesus' words of invitation even this morning as he said to the crowds, come to me, all who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. So come to him with fresh repentance, not from abandoning the first love, but from living an entire life without love for him. And then look upon him as he loves you and is willing to forgive you all of your past sin and all of that coldness and give you the Holy Spirit that will stir a fresh love for him. So repent of your sin and come to him in faith and say, Lord, give me a heart of love for you. And then walk forward in faith with his people. And you also then have the promise that Jesus holds out. And that's the promise we all have who trust him. So after considering this warning, finally we can trust his promise. So fourth, trust his promise of a feast forever. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So each message to these churches ends in the same way with this call to conquer or overcome. And it promises some aspect of the blessing of ultimate salvation for those who do conquer. So throughout the book of Revelation, to conquer is essentially to hold fast and endure in the faith to the end through whatever suffering and hardship may come. It's to hold fast to Christ to the end, to respond to these messages that he even gives to the churches, to repent where Jesus calls you to repent and to keep holding fast to him in faith. And so what's the blessing here if we conquer? Well, the blessing here is like it is with all of these letters. Jesus takes some promise that he's holding out in the new, for the new creation to come when he makes all things new that we read about in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, and he brings some aspect of that into these messages to promise this to his people so that with fresh faith, their faith would go out and cling to that promise and satisfy their souls to give them the ability and motivation to conquer. And so what is the blessing here? Well, it's the promise that we will eat from the tree of life. The tree of life shows up on the first pages of the Bible in Eden. As humanity would eat from that tree, they would live forever with God and one another in paradise. But because of our coldness of hearts and falling away from love and our sin, that access to that tree of life has been barred, but Jesus is bringing it back again. He's opening up the way back to the paradise of God to eat of the tree of life and to experience eternal life with him and his people forever in full satisfaction under God's blessing. So in the end here, if you sense that your heart is cold, what do you do? Well, at one level, to, to, be call, to call our, our own hearts to repent and love God again, we are called to do that. But it's impossible to do on our own. We can't just cause ourselves to love God. So we do this. We trust his promise here. We see his heart behind this promise. We see how gracious and kind he is to give eternal life like this to sinners like us. In other words, at bottom, to have a heart warmed with love for God, we need to see his warm heart of love for us. And we need to rest there. And we need to meditate on his love and see it and find our hearts warmed. So Richard Sibbs, a pastor from a few hundred years ago, wrap up with this, put it this way. Our hearts being cold, they cannot be warm in love to him, but his love must warm them first. You heard Kim say this morning, we love because he first loved us. And in seeing his love for us is what stirs our hearts to love him back. So if we'll return to our first love, 
We have to not just remember that love that we had for him at first, but we need to remember who loved us first. We need to remember who was doing the loving first. It wasn't us. Our first love, that love we had at first, that was in response to seeing his love. And so we go right back there and we remember his grace to us. So let's pray together. Uh, Pray silently for a few moments for one another as a church family and for your own self. And then I'll close. Father, only you can start fires in hearts. Only you can take embers and make them blaze again. Only you can reignite a fire that's cooled. And so we pray by your Spirit's power that you would do that for us. And we thank you for how you have been doing that for so many in this room. And we pray that we would celebrate your work among us and long for you to do more. And so we thank you for your word. Please, from it, bring fresh renewal and revival to our souls. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand to receive a benediction. Now may the Lord direct our hearts to the love of Christ and his steadfastness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. I love you all.